geospatial analytics tools are used to render visualizations for a vast array of applications. Data sources such as satellites and cellular data can gather locations and location data, and that data can be superimposed over a map. A map-based visualization can allow the end user to make decisions based on what they see. ArcGIS is one of the most widely used geospatial analytics platforms. It's created by Esri, the Environmental Systems Research Institute, which was started in 1969. And today, Esri products have 40% of the global market share of geospatial analytics software. Max Payson is a solutions engineer at Esri, and he joins the show to talk about applications of ArcGIS and the landscape of geospatial information systems more broadly. If you have an idea for an episode, whether it's about a company or a project that you're working on, you can go to softwaredaily.com and submit a topic. We're always looking for good ideas. We're always looking for new companies to cover and new open source projects that are exciting and have some traction. You can also support the show by becoming a subscriber and you can get ad-free episodes. All that at softwaredaily.com. Max, welcome to the show. Hey, Jeff. Excited to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. You work at Esri, which makes ArcGIS, ArcGIS being a geographic information system. Explain what a geographic information system is. So it's a system for working with all aspects of geographic data, from upstream actually collecting that data to storing it, managing it, and downstream analyzing it and communicating the, the outputs of that analysis. So it's a comprehensive system built up of many components that kind of get orchestrated together into a GIS. I think another way that I would describe it too is almost as a framework. You can imagine that geographic data is very heterogeneous. You have satellite imagery, you have road networks you want to route against, and a GIS is really good at abstracting the differences between those different data sets and bringing it together so you can visually mash the data together, computationally mash the data together, or pull it into a workflow seamlessly. And is it a database? Like, does it hold my actual data, or is it just creating a materialized view, like a business, business intelligence tool for geospatial information? I think it's, it's all of those. So we really do build technology across the entire stack. The way I would probably describe it is that we build this system to fit three patterns. One is a system of record, another is a system of insight, and third one is a system of engagement, which is a little bit of IT parlance, but I think it gives some good context to how we architect the system. So you can imagine on the system of record side, we have to build databases to store geographic data. On the insight side, we have to build out tools to uh, man interact with and analyze that data, and then engagement applications that users can interact with to understand the data. And like the data in ArcGIS, is it like I bring my own data and I use it to stand up an instance of ArcGIS, or does ArcGIS come with the data in it already? So originally, back when ArcGIS was first developed, it was, it was entirely bring your own data to the point that you would open up the application and you would just see a blank screen. 
which is kind of a funny concept to think about. But over time, users have asked for more data sets to be provided by default. So there are data sets that Esri curates or sources from uh, providers that we make available into this ecosystem for users to manage and work with their geospatial data. And as far as the query process, so if if I think of a ArcGIS instance loaded, and let's say I'm managing a port, like I'm somebody who just is managing the the supply chain of a port and the container ships that are coming in, what's a way that I would use a GIS? Yes, you can imagine that there are a lot of workflows that are around it that are grounded in location for the port. There's understanding where the ships are in a given moment. And so you have the sensors on the ships, like AIS signals that emit where the ship's locations. And those signals can get streamed into the GIS so that people operating the port are able to see a snapshot of where the ships are. That's one sort of operational workflow. Another workflow is you might want to go out and dredge the port. So you go underneath the water and or into the water and start cutting out uh, the ground so that ships can fit next to the docks. In that case, you need to understand the bathymetric contours of the surface underneath the underneath the water, and you need to understand where are the priorities for dredging. And you would also use the GIS to collect the data about the, the dredging and then figure out the appropriate spots to perform that dredging. So workflow-based is probably how I would describe it. Great. Okay, well, let's go through some other workflows that might illustrate how people use ArcGIS. So Esri works with Mobileye, which is an autonomous vehicle technology company. Can you tell me about the the use case there? Yeah, so one of the primary users of uh, ArcGIS are state and local governments. And so state and local governments use ArcGIS as a way to maintain their authoritative data about a municipality. So you can think about parcel boundaries where buildings are built, as well as stop sign locations and components of, of the road, right? And so where Mobileye fits in is they're, like you said, an autonomous vehicle company. They are collecting all these data sets at the, or they're collecting injury at the edge to build out driver assistance and autonomous vehicle workflows. But there's also this use case of taking that data and making it available into local governments or other stakeholders to enrich their workflows as well. So if you're a local government, for example, you need to maintain your stop sign inventory. And sometimes that inventory gets out of date or it can be expensive to collect. So if you have these cars that are driving through with mobile devices, they're able to uh, detect stop signs, and then we've partnered with them to bring those stop sign locations into the GIS so that local governments have access to fresher and fresher data about the locations of their assets. So that's one, one specific workflow, but the high-level intent here is to work with Mobileye to figure out what data is being emitted from their cars and being able to bring that into ArcGIS, whether for asset management or in some cases even analytics about broader patterns. Your work is as a solutions engineer at Esri. Can you give some examples of companies that you work with? Yeah, so Mobileye is a good first example of that, but my role as a solution engineer is to help emerging tech companies build out products with ArcGIS. So that spans from helping them figure out what components of this GIS system could benefit their stack 
and what they're building into their product, as well as how they can integrate their technology into the ArcGIS ecosystem and the user community. So there are a lot of sort of emerging technology companies where that fits in and locations becoming, I would say, increasingly pervasive. So there's, there's Mobileye. Another good example is this company, Spatial AI, that is taking social media feeds and mining demographic data from those social media feeds. So you can see where do people like to drink coffee for example. And we pull that data into ArcGIS and make it available so that users like Starbucks or someone who wants to determine a location can figure out where there are areas that have demographic profiles of people they're trying to sell to. So Spatial AI is another example. We have companies like Fernleaf that are building out resiliency toolkits in the event of a, of a flood. How do local governments and engineering firms effectively respond to those, and a whole plethora, I said, maybe 450 more companies that, that I engage with. So maps are fundamental to how a user is going to use a, a geospatial information system. Can you tell me about the different kinds of mapping systems that exist across the ArcGIS user base? I would probably start on the developer side. So we make APIs and SDKs that developers use to render maps into their applications. So we have a JavaScript API that renders maps in WebGL as well as native SDKs. So the first way to kind of create maps within the system is to use those lower level developer tools to create maps in your own applications. And you can render the data, you can style the data, and you can create map-based interactions like filters and queries. Now, within Esri, we use those same tools to also build out additional map authoring environments. So one is what we call ArcGIS Online. It's a managed SaaS mapping and location platform where as a user or developer, you can upload your data and then use a map making application to style that data and create maps and visualizations against it. We also, the, the third aspect I think is we also have a, a heavier desktop client, which is called uh, ArcGIS Pro, and that's used for advanced cartography. So if you're making this beautiful topographic map of a national park, for example, you might use ArcGIS Pro to have these really advanced and fine-grained controls over the map so you can print it out in a very compelling and almost artistic way. And how do the maps get customized? So if I'm a user, I've got a very specific vision for how I want the map to render, what kinds of use case I, the kind of use case I have, how am I customizing that map? That's another good question. So a lot of it is often driven by the underlying data. So you can imagine there's a class of geographic data called vector data or feature data, which is abstracted points, lines, and polygons, each with associated attributes. And you use those attributes to control how the data is visualized. So if you're looking at COVID-19 response efforts, for example, and you want to visualize based on the counts of occurrences of COVID-19 or coronavirus, then you'd be able to use that attribute of the location to determine how it gets styled in the map. And we have a couple different tools to make that process easier. So we have what's called smart mapping, which interrogates the statistical nature of the data and makes smart default representations of that in the map. And can you go a little bit deeper on the smart mapping? So I, you know, I think about 
a bunch of data that I'm going to be putting into a map, that map can display interpolated statistics of the data that I'm putting in. I'm sure these interpolations can improve with machine learning. So tell me about the the smart mapping. Uh, we'd break it up in two ways. One is on the visualization side, how can we quickly make visualizations of our data in a way that's compelling and informative. And that's where smart mapping fits in. So can we quickly create a representation of the data that highlights outliers in a given numerical count, for example? That's uh, where smart mapping comes in. We also have this whole division, I would say, of spatial statistics that is building out algorithms through Uh, Python APIs and and notebooks that allow you to interrogate the data, run it against some process, and produce an output. And there's an ecosystem, maybe a thousand plus tools that are built for these analytical workflows. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Can you give me some, any more examples of how machine learning goes into ArcGIS? Yeah, I think maybe one way to distinguish between, you know, the visualization and the analytics side is a really common way to represent density in a map is with a heat map. So you open up a map and you see this sort of blurred representation of data. And that's a good visual representation. It shows basically these aggregated pixel values fading away from where the data is located. On the analytical side, what and starting to get into the more statistical algorithms and machine learning algorithms, we can actually quantify where the densities of data are. So we can look at the spatial distribution of that data, identify clusters where things are dense together, and categorize those as hotspots that can then be visualized. We can also do that over time. So we're not only categorizing hotspots in a given snapshot, but also looking at where there are emerging hotspots or declining hotspots. You can imagine that has some use cases in fighting crime, for example. You want to understand if there's an increased activity in crime in a given uh, municipality and be able to allocate law enforcement to respond to that more effectively moving forward. And if I've got a map that I'm using really intensely and I've putting tons and tons of data into it, what kinds of scalability challenges might be encountered in the rendering and the generation of that map? I think one good way to talk about that topic is to look at the history of how maps have been displayed on the web. In the early days, maybe in the early 2000s, maybe in the late 1990s, the approach was that a application requests a map from a server, the server generates an image of that map and returns the results to the client and they just display that image. You can imagine that that starts to have some scalability issues though where every user is looking at unique sets of the map and so every time the server has to go into the database, get the relevant data and cook that into an image. So what Google Maps did in the mid 2000s was they created this notion of tiles. And tiles are pre-computed images that are consistently applied so that when someone requests data, they just get the appropriate set of tiles. And this allows them to be cached and served out without going back into the database. So it's much more, much more dynamic. The considerations around that, though, are you now have to pre-compute these tiles. And so you assume that the data doesn't change that frequently, or users always want to see the same representation of the data. And so what Esri is doing is building out this notion of feature services, which are a way to both 
maintain reference to that authoritative data within the database, but also scale it out through smart caching and some other optimizations as users request the data. So again, a tangible example of that is in a response to COVID-19, John Hopkins University, I don't know if you've seen their dashboards or, or not, but they're using Esri's software behind the scenes to create those dashboards. And the data powering those dashboards gets billions of requests in a given day. And that was in March. So it's probably grown since then. And so there's this unique engineering challenge of having to respond effectively to billions of requests in a day, as well as give always the most up-to-date data for the different consuming clients who want to interact with it. Can you give me more of an overview of the other kinds of tools that exist across the Esri platform in addition to mapping? Maybe, you know, take me through, you could take me through a customer use case and describe how the tools for that customer fit in. Yeah, so I think an interesting use case would be, we worked with company SafeGraph. They create derived data sets from human movement patterns. So you can see aggregated and anonymized who goes to a given location or where they're coming from. And so this is used in site selection, for example, where a retailer wants to know what's the profile of people that are visiting a given store. And the way that uh, we've started to build a solution around this is we're able to pull in SafeGraph's data as, as a service and basically join where these people are coming from to demographic data. So this is done in a desktop tool, for example, or with a Python script that takes the SafeGraph data, looks at a given point of interest, looks at the corresponding geometries, where those people are coming from, joins that data using a demographic data set and a geo-enrichment service to the demographic data, and is able to create a visualization from it from the output. Was that, did that make sense to you? I feel like I could have explained that a bit more coherently. No, 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 that makes sense. And so what's the implementation process for that? Like, you know, when you're working with them, uh, when you're working with SafeGraph, how are you figuring out what exactly to build for them? Yeah, so the implementation process is looking at what tools do uh, the users have available to them to make sense of that data. And then how do we format the data in a way that it can be leveraged within those tools? So there are two tools that are really common in, uh, in this use case that Esri provides. One is called ArcGIS Insights, which is an interactive charting, almost BI-like uh, tool. And then there's another tool called Business Analyst, which is used for generating reports and summaries about demographics of people visiting a, a given location. And so the question is, how do we format and pre-process that data in a way that business analysts and insights can create reports and inform some sort of in investment or site selection decision. So that pre-processing step involves, in this case with SafeGraph, using a Python API to read in the data and output it into a format that ArcGIS can consume, as well as looking at the locations of the data set where consumers are coming from and joining that to demographic data that, that Esri provides so that it's enriched and more actionable within those insights and business analyst tools. Okay. And can you tell me more generally, do, do people who are using ArcGIS 
do they deploy it on-prem or is it mostly for cloud-based applications? What's the typical user? We have we have all of the deployments, which is which is kind of interesting. It's increasingly moving towards the cloud. We still have a lot of users who deploy it on premise behind the firewall, but definitely the the trend and the new normal is the cloud for us. So we have two options. One is we have licensed server software that you can deploy into your cloud environment, and we also have our own cloud managed hosted you know, software as a service that you can just interact with through the applications without having to worry about any of the IT governance or, or cloud deployment considerations. This brings to mind the fact that the company has been around for like 50 years. Do you have much insight into what the stack looks like, what the software stack looks like, and, and what the particularly the legacy pieces look like? <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's a fair question. It's a it's a 50-year-old company, so do we have components written in COBOL, right? <laughs> the answer is no. The our core engines are written in in C and Java and then I believe our server product is also written in Java as well. And then we have different applications that write for their native platform. So for example, our JavaScript apps use WebGL to render the data and they use, in some cases, even WebAssembly to use that compiled C core engine in the browser, which is really, uh, really cool, I think. But the history of it's pretty interesting in that we have been around for 50 years and almost every 10 years, at least historically, we fundamentally re-engineer the platform. So when it first got started, users were interacting with the GIS through a command line. Then it went to the desktop, then a client server architecture. And now we're in this web-based architecture where people can seamlessly interact between different services emitted through the platform. And we're actually in one of those re-engineering efforts right now where we're taking the core server product and re-engineering it into microservices that can be deployed into containers and orchestrated through Kubernetes so it can be more seamlessly deployed in this cloud-native fashion. And have you taken part in that re-architecture or is that a different part of the company? I wish I wish I could say I did, but it's a different part of the company that is building out that uh, server and sort of core product. What are the other elements of the platform that are being developed? What are the newer features that are coming out? I think one of the really interesting ones is on scalable analytics, and this is both real-time analytics as well as big batch analytics um, to derive insight from data. So we have a, a new offering called ArcGIS for IoT that's a fully managed IoT offering. It's built on Kafka and Spark and some other technology components that we deploy in the cloud and then can consume billions of sensor input feeds a second and rationalize over those with spatial semantics. So you can do things like geofencing or track how long a given feed has stayed in a location and then output those into this uh, mapping system to communicate you know, current location of assets or clusters of activity. And do you have an example of when that would be useful? Yeah. So a uh, use case that I believe came up recently is for Department of Transportation planning. So uh, Department of Transportation, for example, has a bunch of 
new feeds that they want to connect to to have a picture of what the transportation system looks like. One of those feeds might be Waze alerts, for example. So we have a connector into Waze that says, you know, there's a in reported traffic incident here. And we use this IoT platform as a way to quickly communicate that into the Department of Transportation. And also looking at the current location of buses, for example. So as a bus is driving along, it emits its location, and the Department of Transportation not only has a picture of where those buses are, but if the driver is even deviating from their normal route. So as that location is coming in in real time, we can see, is that bus on the route it's supposed to be on, or is it actually someplace else, and communicate that through software automatically at scale to the Departments of Transportation. And the data flow in that situation can you take me through that? So it's, you know, you've got like a, you know, real world device and it's communicating data over cellular and then it's getting buffered on ArcGIS's servers and then getting processed. Or just take me through the data flow there. Exactly, exactly. So you have some sensor that is connected to the internet or to a cellular network and it emits data and then ArcGIS can connect to that stream of data or the sensor can just post it directly to ArcGIS. And then ArcGIS, exactly like you said, it buffers all those input feeds and processes them in real time and then outputs them into a database within ArcGIS where users can then later visualize the historical records of that data or perform computations against it as well. Cool. So the internal systems at ArcGIS do you know if they use like cloud provider technology or is it all stuff that's written in-house? That's a good question. So I'd say it's a, it's a combination. So in our ArcGIS Online, that software as a service that we provide, it's uh, deployed in a multi-cloud environment. So we use both AWS and Azure under the hood. But we also write a lot of our, and, and like I mentioned, we also use some open source technologies like Apache Kafka and Apache Spark for some of our that we then build on top of for some of our, our software as well. But then we also write a lot of it in-house. So we have our own software, for example, for managing imagery data at scale and being able to reference uh, imagery data, let's say, in an S3 bucket and dynamically process that and serve it out to a connected application so that the users can work with it. Even if that source imagery data is petabytes of scale in the S3 bucket, we know how to index it and then operate against it in a way that an application only sees the subset and visualization of that petabyte scale imagery that they need. So, so let's say you make a, a solution for a company like Mobileye or like SafeGraph. Does the user or the company that has purchased that application did they have the ability to change the structure of the application? Can they kind of rewrite how the GIS application they've made works? Definitely, definitely. So I would say is from an end user perspective, the schemas and ways to work with this geographic data are really abstract. So to make that tangible, if you're working with vector data, which is you know, those points, lines, and polygons and associate attributes, that's really the only structure that ArcGIS enforces. And you can use that very flexibly to represent all different types of geographic data. So you can configure the system in a way to work with your 
data set. And then from a developer's perspective, you're also able to use those APIs and SDKs that I talked about earlier to build your own workflows or extensions against that core system. Can you take me through another example? So like, let's say I'm a city planner. If I'm a city planner, how would a geospatial information system be useful to me? I think the first part on city planning is you have to have a picture of what the current state of the city is, right? So this is getting back to that mobile example where cities need to know where their stop signs are and they need to know where their bike lanes are. And so sort of the first use case in the city planning example is having the different departments collect and maintain that data. And a lot of that is stored in a geospatial database and a lot of those geospatial databases are created and managed by ArcGIS, right? Now, once you have the current state, then the question is, how do you start to uh, create scenarios or new plans, right? And so there are two aspects to that. One is the tools to create the plans, making those seamless and easy. So we build out tools, for example, to help you automatically create proposals based on various inputs like zoning regulations. And so you don't have to sketch out as a city planner your exact proposal by hand, you can say, given these constraints, show me what a hypothetical proposal could be. Another component on the planning side is the, is the analytics. So what are the effects of this proposal? Is it adhering to my metrics? Is it you know, achieving my objectives? I think a good analytical example that I learned about when I first joined the company is the, the city of Boston has a shadow bank where they're only allowed to have so much shadow cast in the public spaces. And so when they're evaluating new plans, they use ArcGIS to look at the... Uh, proposed new building and whether or not that draws too much shadow from the shadow bank. And that's sort of this cool 3D analytical workflow that is another example of using ArcGIS as an analytical component. The, the last part is just being able to communicate those plans. So making sure the city planner is able to seamlessly through applications share that data and the plans to the city council or to the public for feedback and other and other stakeholders. So this the shadow system you described, that's a a system for visually replicating how shadows would be cast from 3D buildings? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's really cool. So you can imagine there's a set of tools that we provide to first create those buildings. And happy to talk about that more in depth if it'd be interesting. But once you have the representation of those buildings, then you can use ray tracing algorithms and other computations to trace out where the sun is and how those intersect with the buildings and cast shadows onto the surrounding environment and use that quantitatively to look at things like a shadow bank. I know there's some drone technology companies that are using ArcGIS. Can you give me a description for how drone companies could use it? Yeah. To one of the earlier questions, you know, a lot of the GIS is built around collecting data. And so drones are really great feed for data collection and creating new geographic data within within the GIS. So we have drone companies that we work with to or partner with to produce the raw data. And then ArcGIS can process that raw data into consumable forms of geographic data. So an example of that would be a 
a digital elevation model or a terrain model that gives you the profile of a given landscape from the raw imagery collected from a drone. We have tools that process that raw drone imagery, create this digital elevation model, and then are able to consume that digital elevation model in different surface in different applications and services depending on the workflow. So if you want to look at if you want to do just a simple elevation analysis, you can use that output elevation model to do that. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So then the other the other part that I was just going to add is in addition to this actual data collection workflow, there's also this notion of of managing drones and actually creating the flights and making sure that those flights are to compliance. And so we have partners and the ecosystem as well as end users that are using ArcGIS as a system to manage and record flight corridors, for example, and then use that to plan drone operations that feed that collection. And let's revisit what's actually going on here. So if I'm a drone company and I'm using a visual map representation uh, the mapping data that goes into that, is that produced by satellite data? Like, how are you gathering the overall picture of the maps that have information overlaid on them? Yeah, so a lot of it is gathered from satellite data. So Esri does provide some data sets by default, and one of them is what we call a, a satellite-based map. So you can open up a map and see this geographic context of imagery coming from satellites and other data feeds. And Esri does some of the work to stitch that together and make it globally available so that when a user opens up a map in any location, they can see the underlying satellite imagery. And so that can be used to kind of direct, for example, if you identify a building, you can identify that building in the imagery and then say, this is where I want to fly my drone and use that to create the plan around the building. I would also add that we provide tools for working with the imagery as well. So it's not just us creating this one satellite base map, but we also have users that are collecting their own imagery, for example, with drones, processing that, turning it into a new imagery layer, and then using that again to select where they want to, where they want to fly a drone or some other workflow. Let me give a quick example of that. So in, in disaster response use case, when a natural disaster has hit, you want to know where are damaged buildings and where are damaged roads, for example. And so the partner or the user may go out and fly a drone, and then they use ArcGIS to process that imagery. And now you have this nice satellite or drone-based imagery that you can use to flag damaged buildings and damaged roads. Can you tell me more about the back end for what goes into an individual map? So if it's loading on my web browser, what's going on in the back end? So the back ends differ a little bit depending on the geographic data that you're working with. So there's some what a GIS does is kind of abstracts those different back ends together into the system. But to double click on the most common one, I would say uh, vector data, right? What's happening on the back end. At the, at the base level, the data is stored in a relational database. So you have a column that represents the point, the line, or the polygon geometry. And then you have the associate attributes, which are just additional columns in, in the database. 
Then on top of that, there's a server for allowing users to interact with the data in the database. And so this is going back to a little bit around the scaling considerations that we were talking about earlier. We've built what we call a feature service, which is really good at disseminating the data in that database at scale, while still maintaining a reference to it so people have the most accurate and up-to-date information. So that server tier is doing things like dynamic caching. So when you request for data within a given map, it reaches into the database if it needs to, creates uh, tiled representations of that data, and response caches them at the server, optionally caches them at the CDN tier, and then the client is then able to consume the outputs of, of that server response and, and the cache data. Did that answer resonate? or? Do you have additional questions on that? Can you go deeper into the caching infrastructure? Sure. So you can imagine in the the map space that we can create repeatable queries in a way that we're able to cache them. So when you're looking at a given map, you can subdivide it into tiles, and then those tiles can be dynamically created from the database. So you make a request to the server that says, give me the data for this for this screen or for this map view that I'm looking at. The server checks and sees if it's already responded to requests for similar similar geographic areas. If it has, then it just responds with those similarly structured requests and uh, the client then receives them back. If it hasn't, then it goes into the database, pulls them out, and then sends them. Does that answer help clarify a little bit, or would you like me to go? Yeah, deeper? yeah, no, th that's, that's totally fine. I think it's worth talking about the landscape of other systems that can be used to build maps. So you have Mapbox, you have Google Maps. I'm sure there's some others. Can you tell me about this landscape and how those different application platforms slot into different use cases? Yeah, there's definitely been a, a proliferation of, I would say, location technologies. And the way I would probably frame it is that a lot of them are either different components within the location stack, or they are different verticalized solutions. So if you look at Mapbox and Google, these are tools for rendering applications into an application. There's less development on the server side or on the database side for how to manage the data that gets rendered into those applications. So I think on the ecosystem and how I view that as interacting with Esri is, is we build a lot of those components across the entire stack to make this comprehensive GIS. And then there are other providers out there that also engineer components in that stack. And some of the use cases for maps are like for embedded maps, like in, in mobile applications. Can you tell me about how a uh, embedded mobile application, embedded mapping mobile application might might work for ArcGIS, or do you have any, any examples? Yes. When you say embedded application, do you mean in a, in a car or a worker going out into a device or the actual geometry is loaded into a drone for some quick decisions, I guess? May expand on embedded. Oh, I didn't know about the drone use case. I was thinking just about embedded maps in a mobile application, like a, on my smartphone. But I didn't know. So you, so people put ArcGIS software on drones? No, 
I probably shouldn't have referenced that as an example, but that is something that's come up a little bit is we have, so we have these SDKs for building native applications, right? And so you can use these SDKs to build a mobile application that pulls data in from the ArcGIS servers into that app and optionally creates offline packages of them in the mobile app. So you can do things like go out and collect data from the field completely offline and then synchronize those edits back into the GIS system. And one of those uh, native SDKs that we provide is also a, uh, is based on Qt. And so that is often used in embedded embedded workflows. And so one of the things that we're having discussions about is how can we use some of these SDKs in interfaces that aren't necessarily within a mobile application, right, on a phone. And so that's why I was, I think the idea of bringing a geometry that's stored within ArcGIS onto a drone to determine within the drone, is this a place where I can fly is an interesting concept, but not something that we've engineered a solution for specifically. Okay. So what about the like mobile applications? Do people use ArcGIS on, on mobile apps to have some field worker be enabled with something? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really common use case for us. So we, uh, a common industry for this would be utilities, for example, where you need to go out and inspect the, the status of a utility pole or you need to respond to an outage, right? And these are all location-based workflows that are in the field. And so Esri, one, provides the SDKs to build these types of applications, but it also builds out-of-the-box apps that can be used to orchestrate field-based workflows. And that has different components. One is looking at the workforce and helping that workforce navigate to the locations that they need to go to. Another is uh, having an individual field inspector, for example, collect the data in an online or offline scenario and then report that back into the authoritative database. And so we have uh, field applications as well as the SDKs that are built to handle those database replications and syncs as the data comes online and offline. And then the last part is also being able to look at the feeds of data coming in from the field and in either a web client or a desktop client to see what data these field workers are collecting. Interesting. So the, you know, the field worker applications, that could be like if I'm somebody that maintains trails or if I'm somebody that goes out and fixes telephone poles, you could have domain-specific applications for those kinds of things. Exactly, exactly. And so we try and build a couple standardized applications that have configurable data models depending on the use case. So stop sign inventory versus utility pole inspection, right? There are different data models that are able to be consumed in these out-of-the-box applications. But for developers and partners, there are also very specific workflows and reporting or industry solutions that would benefit from not just a configurable data model, but a fully out-of-the-box experience. And so we have partners that build these out-of-the-box experiences for reporting and data collection as well. What are you working on at the company today? So 
One topic that I think has been surprisingly trending is this notion of risk-based routing. There are a bunch of companies that have expressed interest in this recently. And so this is the idea of taking novel data sets or new data sets that are coming off of connected cars like Mobileye, for example, and using those data sets to, one, create a model that predicts risk for individual road segments, and then making that risk actionable by allowing fleet operators or insurance companies to route around the risk or take it into account when generating the risk, or understanding whether or not uh, their drivers are following risky roads. And so a really one area where I've spent a surprising amount of time in the past couple months is helping these companies build, take their uh, risk predictions and put them in a consumable application and routable network that allows them to generate these risk-adverse routes in a way that can be applied to those industries. Cool. And what have been the difficulties in, in implementing those? One of the things even uh, I, was, I was surprised by a little bit was that we implemented a proof of concept for this in about a day. So we, one of the tools that we provide is a, is a routing service. And, you know, in addition to allowing a developer to call out, you know, give me directions from point A to point B, it also has much more advanced parameters to solve for problems like given 100 different pickup locations and 1,000 drop-off locations, optimize the entire workforce for that, right? And one of these advanced configurable parameters is this ability to dynamically overlay or adjust the network. And so what we did was we took these risk scores and overlaid them onto the network through just an API parameter that allowed the solver generating the routes to take the risk into account and give us less, more risk-adverse routes as, a, as an output. And I think it's a really cool use case. It's built as a proof of concept. You know, the, the way to take this into production would be to actually start joining the risks into the network itself so that you're solving for the route across the, the entire optimization process and not just overlaying a single bit of risk information onto the, onto the network from an API call. Got it. And I did want to ask you if you've seen any strange impact on your work or the people you've you're working with the customers from the changes due to COVID-19. Yeah, I think strange impact is a is a interesting way to phrase it. I think there's definitely been a lot of impact whether or not that's strange. It's it's definitely abnormal, I guess. So we have as a company we have dedicated a lot of resources to helping our users respond effectively to COVID-19. So our software is used by uh, FEMA, the World Health Organization, Census, and others that are, you know, boots on the ground engaged in helping respond to, to the pandemic and the disaster. And so as a company, what we're, we're trying to help them however we can, whether that's through granting software at no cost or providing our expertise to help them utilize the software or help their partners utilize the software to collect data on COVID-19. So collecting data in terms of what uh, hospitals have access to PPE or where the case is occurring. And then once they have that data, communicating it out as well as analyzing it to inform some insight in the response process. So 
In terms of strange behavior, I think the strangest behavior is that I, I feel as a company and as a broader community, we're really focusing our efforts to respond. And it's been exciting to be a part of that. Very cool. Well, Max, is there anything else you, you'd like to add about, about the company or projects you're working on? I think there's a lot of exciting technology just from my perspective that Esri's working on right now from the re-engineering into Kubernetes and, and containers to running these advanced analytical operations in Spark, as well as making a lot of the location services like that routing network available to developers. So there's really a lot of exciting technology. I think it's going to evolve rapidly within the next year as well. And if you're interested, you know, feel free to reach out. You can find me on LinkedIn or check out Esri.com. And I think it's an exciting time in the location space. Yeah, I realize now, I forgot to ask you about the mapping accuracy. So we talked a little bit about, uh, you and I talked offline about the fact that you listened to that episode about Facebook and Facebook mapping accuracy. Do you have anything to add about how you maintain accurate maps across ArcGIS? Yeah, I think, you know, in the in the Facebook episode, they were talking about accuracy of maps, making sure the the data is accurate in the right location so you can find the appropriate score the appropriate store and navigate to that store or discover it, right? And I think what's interesting in sort of our dimension of, of accuracy is that we also have to consider the uh, coordinate systems and and the way that that data is actually recorded or the reference system that's used to record that data. So there, you know, the traditional way that we think about recording geographic data is in latitude and longitude. But when we think about accuracy of doing calculations against that data, you can't use latitude and longitude to calculate area, for example. So we have these use cases where users need to have very accurate representations of not just their data stored in a database, but also the underlying reference system for the globe that uh, makes it positionally accurate in the real world. And so we've built out this underlying engine that allows developers and users to work with many different representations of the globe so that it's accurate in real space and also can be analyzed in a way that's, that's geographically meaningful. Awesome. Well, Max, thanks for adding that that bit, and it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Jeff, yeah, thanks again for the time, and been really nice to connect. <laughs>